0: It's a pleasure to be here to perhaps, I guess, finish a joint, although those are big shoes to fill. Um, but it's also a blessing to come to be here, and um, I pray that we will be edified together as we glorify the Lord by Leviticus' word. Um, we have been going through the book of Leviticus in our S series at RCF, and I bring greetings from our RCF. Um, And I thought I would share some thoughts from from Leviticus. Most of them I didn't get to preach. (laughs) But a tremendous book. And um, definitely, as you will know, the theme of Leviticus is holiness, the grand theme. And um, I've related this sermon, the contrasting distinction of holiness. Um, As we've been going through Leviticus, it has been somewhat difficult to identify what we would call an organizing principle with regards to the various laws and ordinances that we see scattered throughout the book. Yeah? We know of the chiascic structure of Leviticus. Um, I assume the church here has done Leviticus before. Parts of it. Well, Leviticus has a chaotic structure. It has uh, various r- ritualistic laws followed by Priestly Laws, followed by um, Purity Laws. And then in the middle of the book is the Day of Atonement. And then leaving in the middle of the book, more Purity Laws, more Priestly Laws, and then it ends with um, some ritualistic Laws. So if you think about it, it's like an X, you know, A, B, C, D, and then C, B, A. And if you think about the pattern of the, um, the menorah, we have six, a singular, Middle candle five by six candles. That's kind of like a chaotic structure, kind of, right? So that's the structure of Leviticus. We know about that structure, but. Um, and the reason for that structure, obviously, is because the day of atonement is the most important day in Jewish calendar. It's the day of atonement. All right? All of the sins that Israel accumulated through the year, there would be a day to atonement for the sanctuary and for the people. But, as I was saying earlier, as it pertains to where we find certain laws grouped together in certain parts of the book, identifying an organizing principle has not been an easy task. And what I mean by this is that in Leviticus 18, which is a chapter that follows Leviticus 16 and 17, which deals with the Day of Atonement, uh, which deals with blood Atonement, we begin to find moral laws in Leviticus Eighteen, forbidden various sexually immoral sins such as incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality. Yeah. We also have the forbiddance of child sacrifice to the god of Molech in verse twenty-one of Leviticus eighteen. But appearing in this chapter that you would think is dealing with all moral laws, the law. Um, is the law in verse 19 which states, "You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity." Yeah, and that's why it's been difficult to identify organizing principle. You have know, these laws that talk, talk about how wicked it is, how immoral it is to engage in sexual immorality, and then right in the middle there, you find, "Well, don't approach a woman in her menstrual impurity." and Like, hang on, is that is that a moral? What is is that law doing there? Um, If you read the first half of Leviticus and consider its chiastic structure, you would actually have become this law of menstrual purity in the laws in Leviticus 15 that deal with the purity laws, right? So why repeat and insert such a law in Leviticus 19 amongst an entire chapter dealing with quote-unquote moral laws? And we actually find the same thing in Leviticus 19 and 20 as well. In Leviticus 19, you have moral laws against idolatry, theft, lying, things that we all agree are moral sins. Even we have even laws prescribing charity, verses 9 and 10. Um, also, we have one of the two greatest commandments in verse 18, Leviticus 19:18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But also scattered throughout this chapter, Leviticus 19, we find such laws as those found in verse 19. Right after the the, the law in verse 18, to love your neighbor as yourself, we read in verse 19, you are to keep my statutes, you are not to breed together two kinds of cattle, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you, two kinds of material mixed together. Again, we ask, what is that law doing there, right? We recognize the morality of loving your neighbor as yourself, not engaging in stealing, not engaging in lying, but then right, right after you say, Love your neighbor as yourself, don't breed two kinds of cattle together. Don't wear mixed fabric. And that's what I said before. It's been quite difficult when you look at the to say, to, to identify your organizing principle. You find all these different types of laws scattered through the books, and we would expect to find moral laws alone. You find right in the middle of it. A law that you will say isn't necessarily moral. And we have the same thing in chapter 20 of Leviticus. Now the chapter divisions are obviously artificial but they are there for good reason. Each of these first three chapter divisions in what we would call the holiness code of Israel correlates with the phrase, then the Lord spoke to Moses. And this marks off as it were a new section in these saints Of the Lord to Moses. So, what's the organizing principle? Is there even an organizing principle? Well, in attempting to answer this question, I think we have to first suppress our expectations that certain types of laws should appear exclusively together in a certain place in order for us to make sense of the book of Leviticus. This is often driven by a desire to say, yes, these laws in this section of the book are no longer applicable for us today but these laws, but those laws over there in that section are still binding we usually come to the Leviticus with this desire to neatly group laws together, say that these are no longer applicable for me, but these laws I must still observe you must still not sleep in your wife, right? right? Yes. let me get an amen, let me get amen. Yes. you must still not lie down with an animal and not say anyone does that well, not here, anyways. But you must still not do that. But must you still not wear a garment with mixed fabrics? If that's the case, all of us are saying right now. Right? Well, maybe not, Timmy. He's wearing full cotton. <laughs> but, uh. <laughs> so, so. Um, yeah. Is there even an organizing principle? Uh, so we, we have to suppress this desire to neatly package certain laws, um, so that we can say are applicable to us. And some are. Truth be told, the organization of the laws we find in Leviticus precludes this simplistic categorization. And why it does this is the point of our sermon this evening. Amen. Amen? Now, as I said before, the grand theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. Holiness. It is captured succinctly in Leviticus 19 verse 1 to 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Throughout the holiness code of Leviticus, you find this phrase appearing at the end of the law or groups of the law. I am Yahweh or I am the Lord. I am Yahweh your God. We find the phrase in Leviticus 11 verses 4 to 45, it says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourself unclean with any swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Amen? Amen. And we would find it in the Holiness Code, after moral laws, we find it in reference to not even swarming things. All of these phrases are shorthand repetitions of the covenant prelude from Exodus chapter 20. When God gave the covenant of the 10 words in Exodus chapter 20, He preluded that covenant with the phrase, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery this is the basis upon which the holiness of, holiness of God's people is founded God's people are to be holy God's people are to be holy because the God who redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and set them apart as his own that God is holy that's where God's people are to be holy the God that set them apart Redeemed them from the house of slavery out of Egypt and set them apart, that particular God is holy. In our case, if we make this applicable to us, God redeemed us from slavery to sin. He redeemed us. We are His people. He is our God. He is Yahweh your God. But it's so He is Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of spiritual Egypt, out of the house of sin's slavery. But when we say our God is holy, and therefore we ought to be holy, then it begs the question: What does it mean to be holy, or what is holiness? Holiness, from a biblical perspective, is defined as otherness, or I am making it worse here, otherness or set apartness. To say something is holy is to preclude it as common. It doesn't necessarily mean that what is unholy is wrong. Let me me put that there. It does not necessarily mean that what is unholy is wrong, but rather what is holy is not common. Its specialness is by virtue of the fact that it is separated from what is not special or from what is common. However, the reason we tend to associate holiness with what is morally right is because in the Bible, and even in our culture, it most often appears within the context of a world that is given to moral corruption. You see this even in Leviticus, and I'm gonna give three examples. For instance, Leviticus 18 verses three to four. You shall not do what was done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you to. You shall not worship in their statues. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statues to live in accord with them, I am the Lord your God. And that I am the Lord your God is the hearken back or the call back to holiness. Leviticus, same chapter, 18 verses 24 to 30, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all of these the nations which I am casting up before you have become defiled. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs like bestiality, homosexuality. Adultery, etc., child sacrifice. You are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Israel's call to holiness Require them not to engage in the pagan and immoral practices of the nations around them, of Egypt which they left, and of Canaan which they were going to. Which is really a symbol of the world. You, 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 the light you left and the life you're going to. Right? Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 26, 26. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I, and I myself, sorry, I am the Lord your God, who has separated you, set you apart from the peoples. You are therefore, verse 25, you are therefore to make a distinction between the clean and the, the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourself detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Again, Israel's call to holiness involved not following the customs of the nations in the Promised Land. Which the Lord would drive out. Things like incest, homosexuality, bestiality, etc. Right? But notice also in verse 25 that Israel's holiness also involved making a distinction between clean and unclean animals. The holiness involved that as well. Now, while we would agree that sexual immorality is inherently sinful, regardless of who does it, Israelite or Canaanite, CRBC member or the man the wrong shot. Right? Sexual morality is, is, is wrong regardless. It's inherently um, uh, sinful. Regardless of who does it, we will not agree that a Canaanite eating pork or camel meat was inherently sinful. You will not say that. Right? Well, some people say that, but we will not say that. We readily get the point as it pertains to moral laws, don't we? You get the point but why give israel purity laws and even mention and repeat them in sections of leviticus where you tell israel not to be like the nations around them the point and i want you to bear this out i want you to really gas this the point is contrast contrast right these laws both moral and purity as well as ritual served to contrast and separate Israel from the world among them around them, sorry. served to separate and contrast Israel from the world around them. The world around them engaged in inherently sinful practices: sexual immorality, child sacrifice and so forth. Israel was called to not be like that. The world around them ate pork, camel and shrimp. And camel is a really nice meat, apparently. It's very clean meat, so this, you know. But, apparently, it does not split the hoof. It doesn't split the hoof, choose the cut. does it split the hoof, right? How about right? Or does it split the hoof or choose the Then you got any point. <laughs> but it's not a dirty animal like, like a pig. Right? It's actually a pretty wholesome meat to eat. Oh, uh, according to our standards, yeah? But the world around them also ate poor camel, shrimp. Making no distinction between clean and unclean animals. Although this was not inherently sinful, Israel was also called to not be like that. Why? Because their God is holy, which is separate from the world. Therefore, God's people were called to be holy, which is separate from the world. In the purity laws, for instance, we find a symbolizing of sin. So, for instance, menstruation is not inherently sinful. But in menstruation, there is a symbolizing of sin. And um, the Bible often uses purity language to refer to sin. I'll give you a few examples. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 16 to 17. The word of the Lord came to me saying, "Son of my friend, the house of Israel was living in their own land, They defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Alright? That's how it is used as a symbol of sin. Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 18. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. David in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 after the prophet Nathan confronted him about his sin, used purity language from Leviticus 14 dealing with the cleansing of a leper. Here's what he prayed. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And hyssop and wash with water was part of the ritualistic cleaning of a leper who had who had been healed and sought to be reintegrated back into the Israelite community. Mm-hmm. David is using the language from the purification ritual of a leper to talk about his sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The sin that he committed with Bathsheba. These laws, all of them, served to set up a fence around Israel as a people separated from other peoples unto God. They served to make Israel holy as they were the people of a holy God. Right? Consider for instance, if you tell a guy, no pork, no shrimp, no camel, and everyone around you is eating pork, shrimp, or camel, you can't invite them over for dinner. Yeah? Um, You can't even bite clothes from them. Right? So yes, there's a, these people call these uh, ceremonial laws, but they have a very real social economic impact. And it's sort of a set of offense around Israel to separate them from the people. Yeah? Uh, even though some of these laws, you say the laws were not inherently sinful, but they served to set up a fence around Israel as a people, separated from other peoples onto God. The point here is to make Israel holy as they were the people of the Holy God. Remember, the point is contrast. These people are this, therefore you are not to be that. Alright? And that contrast transcends just moral boundaries. It transcended even social boundaries, um, transcended dietary, dietary, diet, clothes. Many aspects. "I can't go to the book of Leviticus this evening." You Nor know would I really want to. This is why it was thoroughly appropriate for the author of Leviticus to give a law about loving one's neighbor as oneself, which, as we said before, is one of the two of the greatest commandments in the entire Old Testament. And immediately after giving that law, gives a law. Mixed, mixed fabrics. Yeah? Immediately after verse 18, in verse 19, he gives a law not to mix fabrics, not to mix seeds, or not to breed together, to, together two kinds of cattle. The point is holiness through contrast. The point is other than worldliness. That's the main point in Leviticus. Alright? So yes, many times holiness Speaks to morality, but the, the 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 strict meaning of the term is set apartness. It's not necessary that holiness always involves morality. It just means set apart, sanctified, other than what is common. When we look at this with new covenant eyes. We are obviously forced to deal with the applicability of many of the laws we find in Leviticus to ourselves. But if we, if we understand the grand theme of Leviticus, which is holiness, if you understand how it is presented in the statutes and ordinances of the Lord, which serve to contrast and distinguish Israel from the world around them, then we begin to see how many of the commands and teachings in the New Testament Welcome back to this same idea of holiness through contrast. Yeah. Think of the notes of contrast presented in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a few examples because there are, there are many in the New Testament. But this is an evening service so I can't preach for two hours. All right. But think of the note of contrast presented in the New Testament for God's people. And we can look at a few. For instance... Ultra New Testament but I can tell a you there is the, the contrast between light and darkness the light of Jesus versus the darkness, a world of darkness right? Jesus himself declares himself the light of the world several times in the New Testament the most notable of which is John chapter 8 verse 12. he says, "I am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of light." He told Nicodemus in John 3, verses 19 to 21, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Now, you can't really get more contrasting than light and darkness. That's a massive contrast. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In this passage, what is the darkness? It's the condition of the world. Yeah? It's the condition of Egypt and Canaan. Spread away. What is the light? Jesus is the light. And those who follow him walk not in darkness, but have the light. That's one note of contrast. Another note of contrast is the scope of the Father's love versus the scope of the world's love. And here the author quotes, Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that loving your neighbor is a quote of Leviticus 19.18. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. No. In Quote of Leviticus 19.18, Jesus says that to love neighbor and to hate enemy is is in effect saying that is not holy. Meaning, it's not other than what the world does. Right? And he compares it with tax collectors and Gentiles. He said tax collectors and Gentiles do this. And if you just do what they do, how is that different? How is that different? Yeah? You actually call to something, different other than what tax collectors and gentiles do uh, and that is to love your neighbor and and sorry that is to love your neighbor but also is to love your enemy okay yeah. to be holy as I said is to be other than what the world does and notice in verse 48 that it parallels the structure we find throughout Leviticus rather than saying you, to, you are to be holy because you are to be holy for the Lord your God is holy. He says, you are to be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. He's actually mimicking the structure, reframing Leviticus, that is the basis for holiness. But then rather than say holy, he says perfect or mature. Yeah? So the idea is that we mimic our father in this regard. Right? Because holiness is really an imitation of God. You are to be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And that's the justification he gives in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42 to 48. He says, So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he does what? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How is God set apart? Unlike the other gods of the nation, God takes, God actually feeds his enemies. He gives them rain. He gives them sunshine. There's a lot of mercies that they benefit from. And this was not like the gods of, of, of the pagan world. The gods of the pagan world sustain their people and damn their enemies. Yeah, like alright. Oh, um, so the way God, God in itself is other than the other gods of the world, are and therefore His people are used to the same way. Separate yourselves from sinners by not being like them. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen? Another note of contrast is the love of the world versus the love of the Father. First John chapter 2 verse 15 to 17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. No, loving the world or the things in the world is love of the world. It's love of the world. And the Apostle Paul here makes, sorry, Apostle John, I'm sorry, that, here makes a contrasting distinction between the love of the world and the love of the Father. And again, I'm going to break it down for you if you didn't get it. If anyone loves, if one has the love of the world, He does not have the love of the Father. Did you miss that? No, you didn't, because it's a dirty text. If anyone has the love of the world, he does not have the love of the Father. You cannot have both. The things of the world are not from the Father. The things of the Father are not from the world. Right? I know we read this text a lot, but John is making effort. To bring up to you, contrast. Mm -hmm. So the point is like, John, why are you saying it this way? Do you think you're stupid? But that's the point. He says, don't love the world. And you thought that'd be enough. nor the things in the world. Right? That seems almost superfluous. But it's not. Right? Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. Because if you do that, the love of the Father is not in you. And there got a lot of people that think you can actually give a bit of the love to the world and most love the Father. But joy makes them mutually exclusive. This all Jesus talks about mammon um, and God. You cannot serve both wealth and God. Right? They're mutually exclusive, but a lot of us think that, listen, I can dedicate a good part of my life to serving God and give God glory. A, a lot of people actually say, that I can give God glory by serving love. I have one day, one, even one Christian, quotation marks, um, Reason that one to me. Yeah? Um, but no, they're mutually exclusive. And the mutual ex- ex- exclusivity is emphasized in contrast. And so this is where you're going to have light, darkness, wealth or mammon, God. The love of the world versus the love of the Father. All of these are point of contrast. You remember, keeping it back in your mind, other than worldliness set apartness. Alright? So you not only have the the, the love of the world um uh, contrast to the love of the father but also the world and its lusts are temporary. God and his promises are eternal. In the old testament God enshrined holiness, the holiness of these people in various types of laws. I know we tend to have three, but I actually think there are more. Um, but you have ceremon- you know, ritual, purity, which I guess we bunch on the ceremonial. We have civil laws, moral laws. He enshrined holiness in a variety of laws. Many of them, different types, including moral. And we find not only in Leviticus, but throughout the entire Pentateuch. But they were designed to constantly remind Israel of their set-apartness from the world around them. Constantly. Every day you had to deal with cleanness, uncleanness, um, purity. They live amongst the tabernacle in the midst of God. It would be at the forefront of their minds. Every month a woman has to deal with menstruation. Yeah? So she, every month there's a symbolizing of sin in that and her uncleanness during that period and the the rituals she had to go through to be clean after that period. He embedded the idea of self-partness in in the very fabric of their lives. So not only forbid him to do certain inherently inherently, uh, immoral things, but they were also uh, required to undergo various purity regulations or purity rituals just to remain in his midst. It was constantly to remind Israel of their set of partners from the world around them as they dwelt in the midst of their God who caused his glory to reside in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple of Jerusalem but these laws, all of them pointed to the time when God would ensure the very essence of holiness in a man Jesus Christ Right? he ensured them in many laws but they appointed the time when he was showing the very essence of his wholeness in a man, Jesus Christ. Though a man, Jesus Christ, was ever, or is, is ever worldly, even to the divine degree. Consider John Baptist's final testimony, in John 3.31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth um, is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. You want to get more other than worldliness than coming from heaven? You can't. That's why Christ is, when we talk about ensuring holiness in the mind, you speak of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus' own testimony along these lines in John 8, 23, 24. And he will say to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is from above. You are from below. Eh? So you can't get more holy. You can't get more other than worldly than Jesus. Amen? And he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Consider the testimony of the Hebrew writer, he says, for it is fitted to us for us as a high priest. Holy, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And that's a contrast between him and the Aaronic priest, Those men were defiled. Those men were, were, uh, were not separated from sinners. Aaron had to walk in the tabernacle with blood for himself first before he could go to for anybody else. Consider this high priest, Holy, undefiled, innocent, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Christ is the Holy One of Israel. We know from John twelve forty one that it was he who Isaiah saw in his incarnate form in Isaiah 6 verse 3 over whom the seraphim cried out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. It is the same Christ that fulfilled not only the law to love God with all your heart, soul, and might, which is the first of the two greatest commandments of the Old Covenant, taken from Deuteronomy 6.5, but Christ also fulfilled the second of the two greatest commandments of the Old Covenant, following Leviticus 19.18, to love one's neighbor as oneself. Perfectly fulfilled that. He himself said in John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his Friends, Romans 5 verses 6 to 8, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ the Holy One died for the ungodly. Christ the Holy One died for the unholy. For one who already died for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for us. Calling us friends even when we were rebellious or holy, worldly sinners and he did so to make us willing, holy and righteous before God friends, what Jesus did for us is other worldly stuff don't miss the contrast in the world many that die for you especially if you are the enemies, who is going to live for you but God demonstrates his holiness his love in that he died for us even when we were helpless, even when we were sinners. Amen? And um, uh, Really, before I conclude, I want us to really consider how we live out this life of holiness, even in the New Covenant. No, we do not, we don't have to obviously observe many of the social laws, I call them. That is what we're put under, to separate them from the people's room. Yeah? Um, we don't have to like we're just calling him, although he's very comfortable. Uh, we don't have to refrain from eating poor or shellfish. But if you understand the point of contrast and the self-partness that was recorded of God's people, then how does that impact the way you walk this life even though? Right? Yes, we are called to follow many moral laws uh, Are we readily agree with those laws, but what about the things that are not necessarily, there's not necessarily law for? Yeah? Like, go to the fat on Saturday night. There's no commandment saying, those shall not fat. Is there? Well, yes. yeah. reveling. <laughs> they got men that were just tell you they can only come and kind of start a drink and ball from side to side and waste a bunch of times. But there's no commandment saying that. But if you really imbibe the ethic, the Leviticus ethic, being set apart from the world is not even to be seen in a place where revelry and also our soul unholiness is going on, right? And this kind of speaks to a part of our psyche that we don't have explicit laws to govern, but when we understand the heart of God and holiness, then we understand how we can live a life that is separate from the world, what we are called to in everything that we do, how we even drive. I remember a time I was, um, I, was doing, I was driving with one of my co cool elder Sylvain, and... There was a, a guy in front of us, this is a long time ago. There was a guy in front of us doing nonsense. I was like, Sylvan, man, give this money your <laughs> This man doing very nonsense. Give this money know what it is. And Sylvan said, no. It will affect my testimony. Listen, that was a saying st- 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 I studied with me for years, you Because here was a man considering, listen. It is typical, that makes somebody do nonsense in front of you, Beep. What are you doing, buddy? But here's a man thinking, listen, I am walking in this life before God. And I am called to be holy and to be ever-worldly. I will exercise patience. Yeah? And that's just a, kind of one example of where the Leviticus effort of holiness can inform our lives and how we walk this life as people of God, as those, redeemed, as those redeemed by the Holy One of Israel, Jesus, right? What Jesus did for us is otherworldly stuff. He fulfilled the law in its perfection. And he and, he, um, and he gave this as the example. You are not required to die for your friends. God demonstrate otherworldly love, holy love, by laying out his life for us. Yeah? And he calls us to that same ethic. You're not required that do of the Old Covenant. As a matter of fact, when people were quoting the Old Covenant, they said, love your, I love your um, neighbors, hate your enemies. And they're you're not going to talk to 12. Right? We're talking about the Moabites and stuff. Don't even have to set them into the Assembly of the Lord because they met you on the way and treated you badly. And Jesus said, listen, I, the example I'm you is beyond that. Be like your Father who is perfect. We don't need the law for everything that we do in this life. What we need is the heart of God, and that is encapsulated and enshrined in the person and work of Jesus Christ to a perfect, or I would say, to divine degree. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, after stressing the same contrast as we did in the previous chapter, having these promises, having both the law, and him who the Lord pointed to, and all of the promises that were given in, in uh, all the promises in showing this, beloved, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement, which is period language again, all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And how do we perfect our holiness? By being more like Jesus. Amen? So rather than say, be holy for your father, your father is holy, which is perfectly fine, I will say, be perfect, just as your heavenly father who is in heaven is perfect.